Welcome to Book Sandwiched In. Judge Rees was nominated by President Obama and sworn in on March 10, 2014, as the first female district judge in the Eastern District of Tennessee. Rees received her BA and JD from the University of Tennessee. She practiced law and mediated cases in Knoxville with the law firm of Reeves, Herbert, and Anderson. For 15 years, she wrote a monthly column on legal issues for the Knoxville News Sentinel. She'll be talking today about sisters-in-law, how Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg went to the Supreme Court and changed the world by Linda Hirschman. Please welcome the Honorable Pamela Reeves. Well, thank you all for coming. It is very heartwarming to see so many old friends and new friends here today. This is a book about Justice Ginsburg and Justice O'Connor. Ms. Hirschman starts the book with an introduction that, that sort of sets the stage for why these two people were important and how they arrived at the scene at this very critical time, at least in terms of the way that women's rights were developing in the world. The book then goes through some background information about them both as young people. It talks a lot about Justice Ginsburg and how she became such a prime litigator in terms of her work in the Supreme Court, not as a justice, but as a lawyer. Then it talks a lot about Justice O'Connor and how she came to be the first woman on the Supreme Court. And then, of course, it sort of wraps up at the end by talking about some of the things that have happened in more recent years while the two of them were sisters-in-law, and what happened once Sandra Day O'Connor stepped down. Um, The book actually begins with a discussion about the Supreme Court's ruling in a case of United States versus Virginia. Now, some of you may remember that case, but it was the case where the court held that the state of Virginia could no longer bar women from attending the Virginia Military Institute. And the... um, quote from the book that I think really sums this up is every woman in America was in that courtroom that June day in 1996. Whether you were a Supreme Court lawyer or a stay-at-home mom, pro-choice or pro-life, single or married, having sex in the city or getting ready for a purity ball, in their journey to that day and on that day, these two women changed your life that's very true. Of course, they also changed the lives of men as well. And she says, social revolution through law is a particularly American phenomenon. And I think if you think about that, that's one of the things that makes our country so great. Uh, We try to avoid fighting on the streets and uh, bombing buildings as much as possible, but we make very significant changes through the legal process. She goes on to say that scarcely any political question arises in the United States that is not resolved sooner or later into a judicial question. And if you think back, we've seen that happen now in our lifetimes many times, uh, beginning, of course, with the civil rights era and the many changes that were made then. Then, of course, in the area of women's rights that we're going to talk a lot about. We've seen it most recently in terms of gay marriages and rights for gay citizens. And now, even more recently, the transgender issues are making their way into courtrooms all across the country. 
Hirschman points out that when a moment is ripe for legal social change, there are often many lawyers who would like to lead it. Only some ascend to positions of power, and only some who ascend can actually lead the movement to success. And she points out that in this case, neither O'Connor's or Ginsburg's ascent into leadership was an accident. They succeeded because they had what it takes, and together their differences made them stronger by giving them a wider reach. And she asks the question, where did this extraordinarily rare degree of self-confidence come from? Her answer is that the critical moment of any social movement comes when someone who can think outside the box figures out that other people, rather than, say, nature or even nature's God, are the source of their oppression. O'Connor and Ginsburg each figured that out. If they had internalized the low opinion of the people around them, Justice O'Connor might have been a legal secretary, and Justice Ginsburg might have learned to cook, instead of becoming the heroines of the feminist movement. And then she points out that not only did O'Connor and Ginsburg recognize that they and other women were being treated unjustly, they recognized that a lot of the problems and therefore the solution lay with the legal system. Because at that time, literally, the laws of all 50 states, as well as the federal government, treated women and men differently. Now, I think it's hard, maybe, for us, as we sit here today, to really be able to put ourselves back in time and think about what it was like to be a woman going to law school in the 1950s and to be a woman dealing with all aspects of society at that time because things certainly were different. She points out that neither O'Connor nor Ginsburg graduated law school with a visible commitment to the then non-existent women's movement. It didn't even begin until the mid-60s. Their deep commitments to making a difference and to equality, however, predisposed them to be useful when the movement came. And I think that's important. You know, a lot of us sometimes may find ourselves sort of on the edges of a movement and not even realize that it's happening until all of a sudden it actually becomes a full-blown movement. And at that point, people who can see the big picture can move forward and do what is important and what is necessary to advance the movement. Hirschman also points out that like all disempowered individuals, women tend to be viewed generically. When Ginsburg was first appointed to the Supreme Court in 1993, the National Association of Women Judges had a party. And at that party, they gave each of the two women on the Supreme Court T-shirts. Justice O'Connor said, I'm Sandra, not Ruth. Ginsburg said, I'm Ruth, not Sandra. And it was supposed to be a joke, but, you know, for years, lawyers arguing cases in the U.S. Supreme Court have confused their names. I don't know how many of you all saw recently in April of this year when the lawyer who was arguing the case for former Virginia Governor McDonnell referred to Justice Ginsburg as Justice O'Connor in the middle of the oral argument. (laughs) Now, I think most of us would probably just want to melt into the floor at that point in time. 
time. But with her usual good sense of humor, Justice Ginsburg just looked up and said, wow, that hasn't happened in a long time. So... <laughs> Hirschman points out that the women, although similar and different, once acquainted, and they really didn't even know each other until after O'Connor was appointed, they formed a productive relationship. Neither bosom buddies nor mean girl competitors, the two justices hit a sweet spot of affectionate alliance. For anyone who aspires to lead a social movement, their relationship alone is an inspiration. Barriers didn't stop them, and mockery didn't phase them. Uh, And so I think that that's also indicative of the kinds of person you have to be if you're going to be out front in a movement. When Ginsburg was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1993, someone sent her a fax relating that one of her old law school classmates had told a meeting of the Rotary Club that the guys in her law school used to call her by the nickname Bitch. Ginsburg's response was, better bitch than mouse. So that probably pretty much sums up Justice Ginsburg's theory about that. Now, the first part of the book talks about uh, Sandra and Ruth coming into their own and contrasts the experiences of the country girl versus the city girl. Justice O'Connor grew up on a ranch out in Texas and had what in many ways seems like an idyllic childhood working on the farm. I suspect it was a lot of hard work, but she still continues to talk about it as being a very formative part of her life. And the book tells the story about the day that uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was bringing lunch to her father and a bunch of the crew that were working out on the ranch, and she got a flat tire, and uh, she had no choice but to figure out how to change the tire by herself. Now, I will give her full credit for that. I am much older woman. I couldn't change a tire to this day if my life depended on me, but she managed to do it. She got there, but her dad was not impressed that she was able to change the tire by herself. He was mad that lunch was late. O'Connor's comment about that is that she learned the value of no excuses from that incident. And I think that that's an important value for all of us. You know, it's always easy to make an excuse. It's always easy to blame somebody else. She figured out quickly that no excuses applied, even when the incident might actually be excusable. No matter how unfair, the book says, she would be better off not to defy the male authority figures in her life with demands for just treatment. Now, I suspect that kind of an attitude helped her a great deal once she got to the court and was surrounded by a lot of men with a lot of authority in her life. Now, in contrast to the Wild West, of course, uh, Justice Ginsburg was born and raised in Brooklyn. This just kind of blew my mind. You know, I have no vision in my mind of Justice Ginsburg being a baton twirler, a cheerleader, and it said, a pretty popular sorority girl in the outfit du jour. Ruth already understood very well what it took to get along. Now, I have looked... Many times that pictures of Justice Ginsburg, I've had the opportunity to meet her a couple of times. There is nothing about that woman that made me think of her as a cheerleader, as a sorority girl, or as a uh, majorette. So I've learned something very new there. 
The book talks about that one of the traits that uh, Justice O'Connor always shown uh, in her legal life was her ability to find compromise and the fact that she always tried to solve the immediate problem in front of her without maybe making great big giant overarching changes. So as a result, the decisions that she wrote, especially when she was the swing vote a lot of the times, were very narrow decisions. Back a couple of years ago when I was going through the um, confirmation process, every time I had to appear somewhere, whether it was at the White House or at the Senate Judiciary Committee, the handlers from the Department of Justice always said, be prepared to answer the question, what Supreme Court justice do you admire the most? Well, you know, I had always picked Sandra Day O'Connor just because trying to imagine what kind of an experience it must have been to have been the first woman on the Supreme Court really made me spend a lot of time thinking about her. So I read some things about her back then, and that was another aspect of her uh, way of analyzing things that I really took to heart. You know, I think sometimes maybe it's easier to make a giant leap and change a lot of things when it's not always necessary. If we can try to do the right thing in a narrower perspective, I think at the end of the day that probably helps us get to where we need to be without having to just go in and immediately start chopping down the whole forest. The book says that O'Connor's ineffable gift for the social sweet spot and the ability to take a position quite free of a singular theory, steered the court safely down a treacherous path and helped make a lot of the decisions that were changing uh, the role of women in the world more acceptable to the public. Now, Ginsburg's totally opposite that. (laughs) Ginsburg is more focused on the big picture. But it says that unlike William Brennan or William Douglas or even Antoine Scalia, Ginsburg was not a cutting-edge legal thinker. Once she took offense at the status of women, she took the existing liberal jurisprudence of equality under the law and deployed it in the interest of women. As she saw it, the arc of American history bent toward including all marginalized groups into equal participation in national life. Her strength lay not in inventing overarching new approaches, but in her meticulous command of the game by the rules set down. And it would be a masterful performance. And I think probably if we look back, that's true. Ginsburg was just brilliant, (laughs) you know. But she was able to take the rules of civil procedure and the rules of uh, precedence and really shape those to her advantage. Now, the book talks a little bit about both of their law school experiences. It's hard for me to imagine going to law school in 1950, as Justice O'Connor did at Stanford Law School, and being one of four women in the entire law school. Now, when we got to law school, some of us in the room here were all in that same era, about 20% of the class of 1976 were female. Well, that 
didn't seem like a lot, but it sure was a whole lot more than four people. Over the years, of course, that number has grown, and there was a point in time a few years ago when 50% of the UT Law School class was female, but I think as the economy has taken a downturn, uh, women have realized maybe there are better ways to make a living, and so the numbers, I think, are, are down a little bit now. But... I will say the book's description of their law school experiences was a little bit different than what I remember. Sandra Day O'Connor, it says, was able to do law review, order of the coif, and at the same time fall in love with the handsome John O'Connor, a relationship that began with a beer after an exciting and romantic night of stack checking. Well, I don't know about any of you, but... The times in my life I spent in the library doing stack checking, I didn't think those were very exciting or romantic. The book also pointed out, and some of you in this room are going to remember this, Harvard had its gender hierarchy firmly in place when RGB started there. The only ladies' room in Harvard was in the basement of one of the two classroom buildings. Now, I know a lot of you in this room today remember when we were law students at UT before they built the new building, our only women's bathroom was in the basement in the room that had all the rooms and mops and cleaning supplies. So I was glad to know that Harvard was no better than UT back then. Ruth Ginsburg, who was first in her class at Cornell, had no trouble getting into Harvard Law School, too. But in good 1950s fashion, the future feminist leader put her legal education on hold when her husband was drafted out of Harvard Law School. And the young married couple headed off to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where she took a modest job at a local Social Security office near the base. When the supervisor discovered she was pregnant, he told her, well, you can't fly to this training session that you have to have in order to be promoted, so therefore you can't get the promotion. The ever-observant Ginsburg noted that another woman who had kept her pregnancy a secret did not suffer the similar fate. And, of course, that failure to get promoted cost Justice Ginsburg real money, but she didn't sue because in 1954, it wouldn't have done her any good at all to sue. There was nothing that the government did to women that was considered illegal in 1955. Now, there was another segment of the book that I'm sure my husband and children could sympathize with if the kids were here, and Charles may or may not admit it, depending on how brave he's being today. But um, the book talks about the fact that the first time that Justice Ginsburg's husband sat down to a meal prepared by his new bride, he immediately concluded he had to spend some time mastering the art of French cooking. So... Once Ruth got to the court, Marty became sort of the chef for all of the justices. And after he passed away, they actually published a cookbook that you can buy at the gift store at the U.S. Supreme Court called the Chef Supreme, and the cookbook is dedicated to Justice Ginsburg's husband. The book, of course, goes into some pretty detailed descriptions of their struggles to get jobs when they graduated from law school. And I think we've all heard the story many times about how when Justice O'Connor graduated third or fourth in her class at Stanford uh, Law School, uh, she couldn't get a job. 
She was as shocked about that as anybody, and she, you know, made so many calls and and was turned down repeatedly. She said even after 40 rejections, she was still shocked. She was going to have a long uphill journey to get to the place she had thought so blithely was hers by right. And so, like many oppressed minorities for generations, O'Connor found an employment opportunity working for the government. She had heard that a deputy attorney for San Mateo County had once hired a woman. So she applied. And at first he told her, there's no budget to hire additional attorneys. So she says, okay, I'll work for free. (laughs) And then he said, I don't have an office for you. And she said, well, you know, your secretary and I get along real well. I'll just sit out there at the desk with her until you can find me an office. And that's what she did. Meanwhile, of course, her classmate from Stanford, who had graduated first in the class, two or three notches ahead of her, happened to be a man by the name of William Rehnquist, who got a clerking job right out of law school at the United States Supreme Court with Justice Robert Jackson. So it was pretty obvious to her at a very early age that things were not going to be the same for her. Her opportunities, even though her grades were almost as good as Rehnquist, were simply not going to be the same opportunities. She worked for a while there at the county attorney's office. Then she and her husband uh, went off to Europe while he was on military duty. And when she came back, she saw that conventional career opportunities were closed to her. So she came to her senses and opened her own law office. And a few years later, like many of us, she had babysitting issues. So she quit practicing for a while. But when she allegedly left practice to stay home, she threw herself into Republican campaigns, becoming a precinct committee man and eventually becoming the county vice chairman. She continued a lifelong practice of being at once a man's man and a girl's girl, because at the same time, she joined the Junior League. (laughs) So, you know, uh, she was figuring out pretty early that it helps to have support across the board. Now, back on the East Coast, Justice Ginsburg's fortunes weren't much better. The New York firm of Paul Wise hired her as a summer associate, but despite her having the highest grades in the entire third-year class at law school, It was just a summer fling. When she got out, Paul Weiss would not offer her a permanent job. But her professors are like, okay, don't worry about that. You're so good. You should apply to clerk at the U.S. Supreme Court. So they called their good friend, Justice Frankfurter, who at the time was on the U.S. Supreme Court, and said, we have this amazing woman, and we think you should hire her as a law clerk. And Justice Felix Frankfurter quickly said, I am not hiring a woman. So, in 1959, when Justice Ginsburg graduated, she did find a clerkship, but the book points out that it was with a federal judge, Paul Mary, who was a judge on the lowest rung of the federal court system. Now, Tom, I don't know about you, but I never considered myself the lowest rung in the, in the ladder, so... But she did at least get her foot in the door by getting that clerkship. And meanwhile, back in Phoenix, Justice O'Connor had decided to return to a full-time legal career at the Republican State Attorney General's office. And as O'Connor candidly admits, 
Since I had been active in Republican activities, that no doubt helped. Of course, one of her colleagues, who was quite happy to have her on board, not because she was necessarily good, but because she was so attractive and so pleasant, and she lost no time exercising her traditional social skills, inviting her helpful colleagues to dinner, which she hosted with her usual fabulous hospitality and delicious cooking. You're going to see this theme of her being a great cook all the way through this book. She was famous in particular for her Mexican meals and often uh, cooked meals for her law clerks when she was on the Supreme Court. In 1969, the state senator, where Justice O'Connor lived, left to go join the Nixon administration. So she put herself out to become a state senator in Arizona. Because she knew that the Republicans would support her, she was not surprised when she was appointed as the state senator. The book goes on then to say that Even though at those particular times in their lives, both Justice Ginsburg and Justice O'Connor were leading fairly conventional traditional lives, the 60s were happening. And it points out that the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which of course finally paved the way for lack of discrimination with regard to race, sex, color, gender, religion, etc., was passed. The Equal Rights Amendment was being discussed, 44 years later, still being discussed. And as Justice O'Connor acknowledged, many women around the nation were claiming more in terms of their desire to be treated equally and to have equal opportunities at work. And frankly, I was the beneficiary of a lot of that sentiment. In 1972, O'Connor ran for the second highest post in the Arizona legislature. She became the majority leader and was the first woman in America to sit in the leadership of her state's lawmaking body. Well, meanwhile, again, back on the East Coast, Justice Ginsburg had begun teaching at Rutgers Law School. And some of the women students came up to her and said, you know, we need a woman in the law class. And she was like, okay, you know, what does that mean? And so Justice Ginsburg uh, sort of got roped into it. There was only one other woman professor, and she taught property, and she didn't really want to get involved. So Justice Ginsburg goes down to the library and starts doing a lot of research. And the more research she did, the more shocked she became. The book says that her consciousness was awakened, And she began to wonder, how have people been putting up with such arbitrary distinctions? How have I been putting up with them? And so the grudges she had been carrying suddenly got a lot heavier. Now, the book goes on again to talk about the fact that Justice Ginsburg wasn't a particularly out-front person. She wasn't like Betty Friedan or some of the other women who were becoming actively involved in the women's movement at that time. Her strength lay in her razor-sharp mastery of the unromantic subjects of civil procedure and constitutional doctrine. Justice Ginsburg turned her powerful analytical mind to the problem of using the equality language of the Constitution to destabilize the wall between men's and women's roles. Women during that era were beginning to realize that unless by some miracle the Equal Rights Amendment passed, the only way that legal feminists had to fight 
for women's rights was to extract legal equality from the existing race-based constitutional provisions. Justice Ginsburg understood that that may take a while. She was a very patient person. But at the end of the day, women were not going to have to bring home the bacon and fry it in the pan. As in the Ginsburg household, the jobs would be divided equally. By now, we're into the early 60s. Women at that time need not or could not serve on juries. So, of course, if a woman were being tried for something in court, they couldn't have a jury of their peers because women weren't on the jury. They couldn't tend bar because it was unhealthy to be in saloons, and so they couldn't make the money that bartenders could make. They were protected, allegedly, by marrying, and so their parents' duty of support for them ended sooner than it did for their brothers. You know, I remember I was beginning law school back when the U.S. Supreme Court finally recognized that women do have both an obligation and a right to serve on juries. Former Tennessee Supreme Court Justice Sissy Daughtry talks about the fact that she could practice in courts in Tennessee before she could sit on a jury in a court in the state of Tennessee. Now, there is a lot of information in the book, and I think, to her credit, uh, Linda Hirschman does an excellent job of making some of these big constitutional legal theories readable and understandable. I'm going to just read you a little bit her explanation about why it was so difficult getting the U.S. Supreme Court to include women in the equality provisions of the Constitution. By the early 70s, activists had succeeded in expanding the enforcement of equality beyond race to protect aliens and religious and ethnic minorities. But by the time Ginsburg started her quest in 1970, any hope of getting women the same protection from discrimination as blacks ran right into the powerful backlash that had formed after the wave of social change we call the 60s, Just as women took their place in the long march of American equality, the society and the Supreme Court itself were getting much more conservative. So it was not an easy task that Justice Ginsburg took on. And she looked for specific cases that she could use to advance the cause, little by little, step by step. The book does point out that from Ginsburg's strategic point of view, it didn't matter whether the plaintiff was male or female. The only issue was whether in 1970 the government could treat one sex unequally simply because it could. Civil rights lawyers were always looking for the perfect case, one that squarely presents the injustice of the distinctions with no distracting side issues and with a very appealing plaintiff to represent the cause. So once she went to the ACLU and began heading up their women's project, uh, one of the things that kind of infuriated some of the women who were actively involved in the feminist movement is that Justice Ginsburg would just as soon have a plaintiff in one of her cases who was male as a female, because she could maneuver the court into stepping a step further 
even though they didn't maybe always understand where they were headed, if she had a case that involved a male. And then once that case went down and she got the decision she wanted in that case, she would find another case and use what they had said in the case involving the male to extend the protection to a female. If you look hard enough in the American legal system, you can find a precedent for almost anything. And nobody was a harder looker than Ruth Bader Ginsburg. A case was being argued whether or not a state could say that fathers were always preferred to be executors of their children's estate. And so she was involved in this case, not as the actual uh, lawyer, but she was writing the amicus brief on behalf of the ACLU. And somehow... Ginsburg found a very obscure 1920 Supreme Court case that involved a corporation that sold bird guano. So she was able to take the legal precedent from that 1920s case involving a corporation and use that to her advantage in her argument in the amicus brief on this Reed versus Reed case. And it turned out that the Supreme Court adopted her theory completely in what became then famously known as the bird ship case. Uh, Yeah, we don't get a lot of those, I don't think. So um, in early 1970, when Justice Ginsburg began taking her place as the prominent women's litigator in the country, the court she was dealing with not only was all male, none of those justices even had female law clerks. In particular, Justice Brennan, who was one of the liberals that she thought she could always count on to rule in her favor, he still refused to hire a woman law clerk. I, just out of curiosity, went yesterday and looked up in the class of law clerks that are serving right now that will leave the court at the end of June. Of the 36 law clerks that our Supreme Court justices have, 11 this year are females, so I guess that's not bad for, for a few years' difference here. Now, it turns out that the year, the term of court, 1974 to 1975, was probably the most dramatic year in terms of Justice Ginsburg's career. And and the book notes that when court opened for business the first Monday in October 1974, it would consider cases involving almost every aspect of women's equality, women on juries, women as soldiers, defending their country, women as workers, earning Social Security, and parents' obligations to their girl children. What the court did in 1974-75 could determine the course of the women's legal movement for decades. And Ginsburg was well aware of that fact because she was arguing half of those cases. Now, that year, Ginsburg did have an ace in the hole. For the first time in its history, as the Supreme Court addressed the issue of whether to turn back the clock on sex discrimination or to move forward, building on some of the earlier cases, the court included four female Supreme Court clerks. So in that short time between 70 and 74, that barrier had been crossed. And the book points out that really behind the scenes, those female clerks were very influential. They realized, looking ahead into that term of court, 
that there were going to be some significant issues involving women. And so they kind of went above and beyond the call of duty in terms of preparing outlines and drafts for their judges and, more importantly, being willing to sit down and talk with the justices about these cases so that when the justices went about making their decisions, they at least had the benefit of having heard the perspective of the female clerks. Now, the book devotes an entire chapter to the topic of abortion, and for a ton of reasons, not the least of which we don't have a lot of time, uh, I'm not going to talk much about that chapter, but I will say this. I really recommend that you read that chapter. There is a lot of information in that chapter that I had no you know, no knowledge at all about, in part because, frankly, I was a high school senior when the court decided Roe versus Wade, and the whole concept of abortion really hadn't, thankfully, ever had to cross my mind much at that time. But from a historical perspective as well as a legal perspective, that chapter of the book is very interesting. Importantly, for our purposes today, of course, neither Justice O'Connor or Justice Ginsburg were either one involved in that case as lawyers or as decision makers. I kind of hate that in some ways because I feel like if they had been, (laughs) that whole area of the law might have been settled in a much clearer and more workable way than it ultimately ended up. But moving on, I love this passage from the book where it talks about Justice Ginsburg's time period as a litigator. And it says, Mozart had, by many accounts, five operatic masterpieces. Jane Austen's reputation rests on five novels. And as chief litigator for the Women's Rights Project from 1971 to 1980, Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued in five great Supreme Court victories. And won laws. In five landmark cases over less than a decade, she largely transformed the constitutional status of women in America. Now, that's saying a lot, folks, let me just say. And to be honest with you, I don't think before I read this book that I had any grasp of how truly significant the role she had played before she came on the bench. Ginsburg was nominated by President Carter to the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And on June 30, 1980, Ruth Bader Ginsburg put on her judicial robes. Her days of employing the courts were over, and now she would be the one doing the deciding. Well, meanwhile, back in Arizona, Sandra Day O'Connor was also becoming much more involved in issues that had to do with women's rights. At the same time, she continued her ability to be a feminine person. I mean, you know, if you look at the two of them, you see contrasting their styles, but uh, Sandra Day O'Connor would frequently tell the joke that it's a tribute to American democracy when a cook who moonlights as a janitor can be elected to a high public office. She made fun of the fact that she had all these responsibilities as a woman, but at the same time acknowledged the fact that she could still do the other things. A lot of the women who were very involved in the women's lib movement back in the 70s, were not happy with Justice O'Connor. She had 
opportunities perhaps to advance the cause of women earlier, in particular with regard to the Equal Rights Amendment. Congress passed the ERA in March of 1972, and at that point in time, the ERA had very strong bipartisan support. It's hard to think back on that now, but those were in the days before Phyllis Schafly. But um, when the amendment came before the Arizona state legislature was when Sandra Day O'Connor was the majority leader. And despite the fact that she had previously indicated she was going to support the amendment, when it actually came to the Arizona legislature, she agreed to delay a vote on it. And, of course, delaying that vote, even by a year, gave time for the tide to turn, and then the Republicans began bailing out on their support for the ERA. So that got her a lot of criticism from a lot of women's groups. I thought it was kind of interesting that in 1971, President Nixon nominated her old classmate, William Rehnquist, to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court. And during Rehnquist's nomination process, information surfaced indicating that when he had clerked at the Supreme Court back in the early 50s, he had recommended that Justice Jackson vote against Brown versus Board of Education. You know, you see her today and you think, how could anybody who ultimately became a chief justice on the U.S. Supreme Court say that as late as 1952 that schools should remain segregated? And I, I can't imagine today that, that someone with that kind of a background would get approved for the Supreme Court. But things were still very different then. O'Connor, despite the fact that Rehnquist was totally opposed to the women's movement and, and anything that had to do with the women's movement, threw herself into supporting him, I guess because he was her old friend and her old law school classmate. Uh, I, I sort of feel like maybe she had the same position with him that some of my friends did for me, and that is, well, we'd rather have somebody else, but if it can't be somebody else from my political persuasion, <laughs> then we'll go with the devil we know. <laughs> you know, she did have the ability to balance her Republican background, which, as we know, turned out to be good for her because Ronald Reagan became president. He had famously said that if he became president and a vacancy occurred on the Supreme Court, then he would appoint a woman. Well, about that same time, Justice O'Connor and her husband happened to be invited to spend a weekend on a houseboat with Justice Berger and his wife and another couple from Arizona. And now keep in mind that Justice Berger had told President Nixon that if he appointed a woman, that he would, that Justice Berger would resign. So somehow during the course of that weekend on that houseboat, Justice O'Connor, ultimately to become Justice O'Connor, became fast friends with Warren Burger. So by the time her nomination came up, he was fully supportive of it. So I think, again, that tells us, you know, sometimes we might think a certain way until we get to know the person, and then suddenly things don't look the same. So he went from being totally opposed to having a woman on the bench to being a very strong supporter of her when she was nominated. And uh, I loved it when the vetting committee came from the White House to O'Connor's house. She did her usual thing. She would sit and talk about the ins and outs of federal and state relations with Kenneth Starr, who was the one heading up the search. And then she fixed them a lovely lunch of salmon, 
salad, and iced tea. And Starr reported back to President Reagan, she has everything, the right age, philosophy, and political support. The fact that she had never heard of federal case, hey, no big deal. Now, in today's world, again, I'm not sure that that would fly, but at that point in time. And the book also points out, of course, to no surprise, that once Reagan met her, it was all over. Horses, ranching, their get-acquainted meeting produced a perfect union of two independent spirits from the sun-drenched West. He told his team, don't even bring anybody else. So it worked out well for her. When O'Connor heard that she was to be appointed, she said, it's okay to be first, but you don't want to be last. Now... The only real criticism in the book of Justice O'Connor, Hirschman really was disappointed with her vote in Bush versus Gore. But then she points out that after that vote, Justice O'Connor started a streak of five years where she voted with the liberals on the court and was the swing vote on every single case having to do with women's rights and, and women's issues. January 2006, Justice O'Connor stepped down, and of course at that point, poor Justice Ginsburg was back once again as the only sister left on the court. And Ginsburg's comments about O'Connor, I thought, were telling. We divide on a lot of important questions, but we have the experience of growing up women, and we have certain sensitivities that our male colleagues lack. I didn't realize how much I would miss her until she was gone. And, of course, over the next few years, Justice Ginsburg became the great dissenter, dissenting on many of the opinions because she was now obviously in the minority on the court with the appointment of Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. Hirschman wraps up the book with a report on Ginsburg's Internet notoriety, And I have to say, I cracked up. I went online the other night and just looked at all these things, Ginsburg, you can buy. (laughs) You can get T-shirts and coffee cups. Somebody sent me a Mother's Day card uh, with a picture of Justice Ginsburg on it. Um, It also talks about Justice Ginsburg's reaction to the Hobby Lobby case. And that, of course, was the case where the Supreme Court recognized that a for-profit corporation, at least a closely held one, could have a sincerely held religious belief. And Justice Ginsburg gave an interview to Katie Couric not long after that decision. And she decried the inability of most of her male colleagues to understand the lives of women well enough to see the importance of contraception. She said she hoped that these men's understanding would evolve under the benign influence of their wives and daughters. And she later went on to express her profound disagreement with Justice Kennedy on the Gonzalez versus Carhartt case because the opinion that Kennedy wrote said that the woman in that case would live to regret her choice. And Justice Ginsburg said this was not anything this court should have said or thought. Adult women are able to make decisions about their own lives no less than men are. And so... I know our hour is about up and people need to get back to lunch. Thank you all so much for coming, and I hope you enjoyed the book.
Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.